I invite you to open your uh, Bibles with me this morning to Job chapter 40. And we're going to be looking at the second part of God's speech to Job. So now we're actually looking at uh, the words of God to His servant Job. Just to uh, remind you again and put this uh, in the context of the, uh, of the book. Why did Job suffer? It's one of the great themes of the book. And first, it was to prove Job's faith to Satan. That's chapter 1 and chapter 2. Satan had accused Job of having a faith that was only uh, given to worship God because God blessed him with all these incredible blessings. And so to prove that that Job's faith was deeper than that is the first reason that God allowed Satan to bring those tragedies and sufferings into his life, to show Satan that Job's faith was real. It was deeper. The second reason is to actually improve Job's faith by exposing the hidden sin of pride that grumbled against God because of his sufferings, and then God gave him grace to repent. And that's really the second reason And that's mainly the reason that we see in God's words to Job. He's dealing with this underlying issue of pride that gradually arose in Job's heart as he began to grumble and complain against God and accuse God of being unfair, unjust, wronging him because of his sufferings. God knew that sin was in his heart. And in love... And devotion, I get, or commitment, I should say, to his servant Job. He is exposing that sin so that he can bless Job by having him deal with it. And this is really the second main reason for the sufferings of Job. It emerges gradually through the book his pride, dealing with his pride. The third, of course, is to be a type of Christ. And uh, we've looked at that before and we'll have an occasion to see that later on. So the sufferings of Job were designed to not only refute Satan, but also to reform Job. And herein lies the glorious wisdom of our God that we worship. That He can employ the most terrible afflictions to come into your life or into my life as a work of grace and love to deepen the work of His grace in our hearts. And our great God can do that out of His love for His children. It's difficult for us to understand. But this is what He's doing with Job. God's sanctifying grace comes to Job by means of these two speeches from God where God is directly going to confront Job with that emerging pride of challenging God's justice, challenging the right of God to treat him the way he's been treated, to bring all these sufferings in his life. And God's sanctifying grace is now going to come and help Job see that pride and ultimately to abandon it. So by way of review, last week we looked at the first speech in chapter 38 and 39. And in this section, 
God begins to shower Job with questions revealing how small and insignificant Job really is. And how great and majestic God is as the creator and sustainer of His universe. So God opens His volley in chapter 38 by saying to Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And so God begins to be the inquisitor and He asks Job beginning, where were you when I created the earth? And by doing that, He's beginning to to shrink Job's pride to see who he really is. He's but a creature. And he's been complaining against the Creator. He was not there. He offered no advice to God on how to create the foundations of the world. And then throughout all the rest of the questions, God begins to show Job how He not only created the world, but in wisdom He governs the world. He governs the earth, the seas, the stars, the storms, all the animals, all the wild, mostly wild animals, so that God is omnipotent and God is omniscient. And yet Job understood none of this. Job understood nothing about God's creative power. Job understood nothing about God's wise governance of the world that he made. And yet, Job was still finding fault with God's management of his life. The sufferings, the afflictions that came into Job's life, he was accusing God of injustice. And so at the end of this first speech, God then confronts Job with these words. Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him who reproves God answer it. And so God is now nailing Job exactly where his problem lies. He was finding fault with Almighty God. He was accusing God of doing wrong. And God challenges him, reprove me. You're the fault finder. Let him who reproves God answer all my questions. See if you can tell me if you were there when I created, if you were there when I governed, if you were there when I managed my my world. Were you there? Do you know? You have reproved me. Then you answer all of my questions. Where were you? Do you have knowledge of this? Do you have knowledge of that? You have none of that. And all of this in love and grace, God is confronting Job with his insignificance. And yet this brash, proud heart that was accusing his Creator of wrong. So, in all of this, Job responds in verse 4, Behold, I am insignificant, What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer. Even twice and I will add nothing to it. So the effect of the first speech of God to Job is to bring Job to a position of silence. What can I say? I'm insignificant. I lay my hand on my mouth. I'll speak no more. So the first speech resulted in Job seeing his lowliness 
and seeing that he has nothing to say against God and he's silent. He wants to be silent. But Job has not yet expressed his willingness to, his willingness to submit to God's sovereignty and God's lordship over his life. It's one thing to be humbled into silence. It's another thing to be humbled into submission. And this is God's aim in the second part of his speech. is to now so humble Job that not only is he silent, but he now submits to God. And that's the position that God is working in many of our lives at different times. When circumstances come into our life that we don't like, trials and sufferings and afflictions, and we begin to complain to God, God, I don't like the way this is coming to my life. Lord, why did you cause this to happen to me? Why me? Why this? Why now? And we begin to complain and grumble against God. And God needs to teach us what He's teaching Job. Your view of yourself is too big. And your view of God is too small. You need to see God in His greatness. You need to see you yourself in your smallness. And you need to submit and zip it. And that's basically what God is communicating to Job. And this is because of His love for Job and His desire to, to improve His faith. So anyway, we, uh, we start now into the second speech. We're in Job chapter 40 and starting in verse 6. And notice what it says, And the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said... Now remember, it was a whirlwind at the beginning... So the storm is still going on. There is, a, I think, a, very, a real storm that's taking place. And this adds the, the visual uh, weather effects to add weight to God's words because there's actually a storm going on. Probably lightning, there's a tornado. And all of this was to get Job's attention to, to listen to me, God is saying. So he's speaking out of the storm. And notice as he begins his second speech to Job, he begins by rebuking him. Look at verse 7. Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me, Job. So this is the very same thing he said at the beginning of the first speech. So he repeats it here. And then notice verse 8. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? And this again is the great issue that has been uh, plaguing Job's heart, his pride. So God rebukes Job for that. Will you annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Because Job has accused God of doing wrong in order to maintain his own innocence. God, you're supposed to punish the wicked and bless the innocent. I am innocent. And yet, you have afflicted me with suffering. Lord, you are not doing right. And he is actually trying to annul God's judgment to render it void and invalid. Because you are punishing an innocent man. And you are wrong to do that. That's the accusation. And then he adds that Job, will you condemn me that you may be justified? And this is the heart of a proud, of a proud heart. This is the essence of a proud heart. 
We condemn God to justify ourselves. That I'm in the right. God, you're in the wrong. I don't deserve this. You have no right to do this to me. And we get angry with God. And what are we doing? We are condemning the almighty, infinitely wise and holy God in order to justify ourselves. And that's exactly what Job had been doing. And God exposes it. And He rebukes Job for that proud arrogance in His own heart. Job was trying to not only nullify God's judgment, but he was trying to justify himself claiming that God was in the wrong. He was claiming that God had perverted justice. That God had sent these sufferings into his life when he was innocent. He didn't deserve it. And all of this is the root of his own pride. Because the proud heart always clings to its own innocence and it's always going to blame other people. It's going to try to elevate ourselves as righteous and other people as less righteous. I'm the obedient one, God. I'm doing everything right. And even God is wrong because He is making me suffer. This is the attitude of Job's heart. He's complaining against God's justice And this is the very essence of the insanity of sin. This is where our own pride that we all still have brings us to. I will accuse God of being wrong. I'll definitely at least accuse other people of being wrong, but I'm always in the right. Someone once wrote in a little poem, he says, He who thinks himself to be always right proves himself to be not so bright. And I think there's some truth there. It's just the insanity of our sin. We are naturally self-righteous. And we want to look down as other people's being inferior. Happens in the church all the time. So God exposes Job's sin. His pride. And then in verses 9-14, through God exposes Job's inability to rule. Let's look at some of these verses. Look at verse 9. Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. Pour out... I'm sorry, I started in verse 10. Let me back up to verse 9. Or do you have an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. In other words, what God is saying to Job is, Job, you're trying to play God. If you're God, do you have an arm like I do? An omnipotent arm? Can you make your voice thunder throughout the earth like I can? Verse 10, can you adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty? Job, you're exalting yourself as if you were God. Can you actually bring to yourself the glory and the honor and the eminence of God Almighty? Now understand, where is Job right now? He's sitting in an ash dump outside of his city, clothed in rags, scraping the sores on his body, despised by everybody, mocked by the, by the, the rabble within his, his community. 
And yet God is challenging him. Okay, you're accusing me of being unjust. You're, you're claiming to be equal with me. You're claiming to be God. Then clothe yourself with eminence and majesty and honor and glory. Show your omnipotence by your, by your arm, your right hand, your power. Show that. You're accusing me of wrong. You, you think you're equal with me. And that's the very essence of God hammering down. He's driving a bulldozer over Job's pride right now. He's trying to show him how utterly ridiculous it is for him to accuse God of, of doing something wrong. In verses 11-13, through 13, God now challenges Job to execute judgment on all the wicked people. If he can do that, of course he can't. And then look at verse 14. If you can do all that, Job, if you can reveal your arm to be omnipotent like my arm is, if you can thunder with your voice, if you can clothe yourself with eminence and dignity and honor and majesty, then verse 14. Then I will also confess to you that your own right hand can save you. If you can do all that, Job, then I'll acknowledge that you're God and, and you can save yourself. But by the way, you're not saving yourself. You're still in the ash heap. You can't do anything to improve your circumstances. And all he's trying to do is to bring logic to Job to show him his insignificance. How utterly ridiculous it is, these outbursts of pride accusing God of doing something wrong. And so he's continuing to to bring this before his servant. It sounds harsh, but it's done in love because God wants to sanctify his servant by humbling him and helping his faith to grow. That's the way God deals with us sometimes. But it's always in love. It may sound harsh, but God does it because of His loving kindness towards His servant. So, at this point, God now is going to take another approach with Job. And He's going to bring out and put on display a couple of His little pets. These little critters that He has created. Uh, behemoth on land and Leviathan in the seas. And he's going to bring them before Job and just see uh, how Job measures up with these little animals that God has created. So the first thing, by the way, the, some people will approach behemoth and Leviathan as being mythical creatures. I don't take it that way. I think they were real creatures. Uh, all the other animals that uh, God has referenced in chapter 38 and 39 were real animals. Lions, ostriches, goats, ox, hawks. And I, I think this is a real one as well. Uh, there may be some, there are some figures of speech in these descriptions. Uh, God has used figures of speech in His first speech. Uh, he referred to rain as coming from his water bottles in the sky. God literally doesn't have water bottles in the sky. So it was a figure of speech. Uh, He'll describe behemoth as having bones made out of bronze and metal. And obviously that's going to be a figure of speech, but it still is used of a real animal that was there. 
we're also going to see that uh, he created behemoth. So he's not a fictional animal. He's actually made. So look at verse 15. Behold now behemoth which I made as well as you. So God is saying I made behemoth just like I made you Job. But I also made this animal. Behold him. I want you to think about him. Compare yourself with behemoth. Because you're nothing compared with this animal. Now the word behemoth, interestingly in the Hebrew, is a plural noun. Literally, if you translated it, it would have the idea of beasts in the plural. And this uh, sometimes in Hebrew, a plural noun uh, refers to an intensive plural or we call it a a majestic plural. In other words, he's not talking about multiple animals, but the animal that is above all the other animals. And so he'll speak of him as beasts. Not a plural, but just the beast above all the other beasts. The animal above all the other animals. And so the, the plural number in the Hebrew noun can indicate that idea of the majestic plural or the intensive plural. So what God is saying is that this, this animal, this behemoth, is the animal above all others. This is the land dweller above all others. It's interesting, this uh, majestic plural is also found in the, in the name of God. Elohim in Hebrew is a plural noun, but you don't translate it gods, but the God above all other gods. It's a majestic plural, Elohim. And so the same idea is here with this animal. It was a huge animal. Let's read on in verse 15. He's a herbivore. Herbivore. He eats grass like an ox. Verse 16. Behold now his strength is in his loins. His power in the muscles of his belly. He bends his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze. His limbs are like bars of iron. They are like bars of iron. So it's a figure of speech here. And then he goes on and describes the uh, exalted character of Behemoth. Look at verse 19. He's the first of God's ways. Let his maker bring near his sword. Being the first of God's ways kind of indicates this animal, behemoth, was the crown of the animal kingdom. And possibly it has reference to the size and the greatness of this animal, behemoth. He is the largest, most terrifying animal that God created. And let His Maker bring near His sword. Only the Maker can subdue this particular animal. Only God can defeat Him. And then drop down to verse 24. Can anyone capture him when he's on watch with barbs? Can anyone pierce his nose? No, he can't. The idea is that this animal, man is no match for him. Man cannot control him. Man cannot capture him. He's far greater. He's too great, too vicious, too big. So what exactly was this behemoth character? Well, one of the descriptions, if you go back up, And look, for example, at verse 17. He bends his tail like a cedar. A cedar is a huge tree. And this animal bends his tail like a cedar. So some have thought, well, behemoth must have been an ancient form of a 
of an elephant. But look at that tail, would you? That doesn't really look like a, a cedar tree, maybe a twig or a sapling. So I don't think an elephant is what behemoth was. Others say a hippopotamus, but look at that tail. I mean, that's a stubby tail, uh, certainly not a cedar tree. So I don't think a hippo is in view. How about a rhino? Some have thought it was a rhino. But look at hardly a tail worth even mentioning. So not much of a, of a tail there. But how about this? That tail looks like a cedar tree to me. Look at the girth of it. Look at the size of that tail. This is of a brontosaurus, about 90 feet long, weighed 33 tons, massive animal. That's a tail like a cedar tree. He swings that tail. Some think that uh, the brontosaurus, that size of a tail was actually used as a weapon. Here's a brachiosaurus, uh, another similar to a brontosaurus compared with a hippo. So a huge animal. This, uh, of course, raises the question, uh, you mean Job and dinosaurs were on the earth together? And that's exactly what I think the Bible teaches. Um, modern evolutionary theory, of course, says that the dinosaurs uh, were basically went extinct 65 million years before man came on the scene. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, You've got to understand that God created all the land animals and Adam on day six of creation. They were created on exactly the same day. So I think uh, what Job has in mind here in describing behemoth is some kind of a huge, large, gigantic dinosaur of some kind or another. And uh, they're extinct now. We don't see them running around. Uh, Noah's flood, no doubt, would have killed many of them. But uh, Noah brought some of them on the ark, probably the small, uh, the small ones, the young ones. And then after the flood waters subsided, I think they were able to repopulate and spread out some on the earth. And then eventually the, the ice age that came as a result of Noah's flood uh, probably contributed toward their extinction and other factors so that they're not around anymore. But I hold to a young earth not an old earth. And I think uh, what Job has in mind here was a dinosaur that probably was still on the earth when he was alive. And God is drawing reference to it. And basically what he's saying, can you tame this animal? Can you capture him? Can you control him? And he's just one of my little bitty creatures, one of my little bitty pets. And if you can't even walk a little lap dinosaur, how do you think you're going to accuse me, the creator of all things, of being unjust or, or not having infinite power, infinite wisdom to govern my world? In other words, he's comparing Job with behemoth and just saying, Job, you're, you're totally insignificant. You can't even control one of the animals that I've created. 
And yet I created it and I govern it in wisdom and power. So again, he's shrinking Job down. The next pet that he brings to um, Job's attention is Leviathan. Now again, uh, this is, uh, Leviathan is described here in all of chapter 41. So the rest of God's speech to Job is all describing Leviathan. So Leviathan is a sea monster of some kind. And uh, God keeps Leviathan in one of his little aquariums called the ocean. And so he's going to bring that out to Job and let Job compare himself with another one of the little creatures that God has made, Leviathan. So we start in chapter 41. And notice uh, the first few verses here. Verse 1. Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook? Or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose? Or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many supplications to you? Or will he speak to you soft words? I mean, is he like your little pet? Does he come and confide with you? Does he nestle up next to you and and speak tender words to you? He goes on to say in verse 4, will he... Will He make a covenant with you? And will you take Him for a servant forever? Will you play with Him as with a bird? Or will you bind Him for your maidens? Will you turn Him into a little house pet? And so He begins to lay out. And and Job knew what creature this Leviathan referred to. We're not so necessarily sure exactly what this animal was. But he He was a sea creature. And what God has said is, Job, you can't capture it. This animal will not serve you, and he's definitely not your pet. And in verses 6 through 10, God says to Job that this animal cannot be captured, and you cannot sell it. In other words, it's not like the market where the hunters go out and they kill an animal, they bring it in, they sell the the meat or whatever it is. You can't do that with Leviathan. Nobody can. Nobody can go out and kill it. And then notice what he says in chapter 41, verse 10. No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him. So then is he that can stand before men. Who then is he that can stand before me? Sorry. So what God's point is here is that, Job, you want to stand before me and plead your innocence and accuse me of wrongdoing. You want to defend yourself before me and stand before me. But if you can't even stand before Leviathan, how in the world do you think you're going to stand before me? So again, he's drawing the point to let Job compare himself with Leviathan He can't control Leviathan. Leviathan is vicious. He is terrible. He's destructive. No man can subdue him. And if you can't do that, if you can't stand before one of my little animals that's vicious, how are you going to stand before Almighty God? So again, he's just whittling down his his pride. We see in in the next, the rest of the chapter, a description of Leviathan. And let's read some of these verses. Look at verse 12, 
chapter 41, verse 12. I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his orderly frame. Who can strip off his outer armor? Who can come within his double mail? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth there is terror. His strong scales are his pride, shut up as with a tight seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. So he's talking about his scales on this incredible animal. And he's saying the the scales are impenetrable. They're so overlaid, so tight that not even air can get between them. So he's describing some kind of an animal that has scales. And then notice again what he says in verse 18. His sneezes flash forth light and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning torches. Sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils smoke goes forth as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals and a flame goes forth from his mouth. So what in the world are we looking at here? What kind of a creature is here? Well, again, Job goes on in the rest of the chapter and describes the incredible strength of this animal. Capturing him is impossible. This animal fears nothing. He rules over all of his domain. And so we're talking about some kind of a creature of incredible size, incredibly terrible with scales and teeth. So most people think that this is probably some kind of an alligator of sorts. Now again, here's a, the alligator in, in uh, the black is, is a, a very large size alligator by today's standards. I think that one's maybe 14 feet long. But they have found fossil records of much larger alligators. You have the one in the green, but then you have the one in the gray in the background. And these are, they have found fossil uh, of the bones and skull of this particular alligator, and he was a beast. This was a monster. And it may very well have been the Leviathan that God is talking about. If you look at um, this particular uh, alligator, his name is the Danosuchus. And he, they extrapolate, because they don't have a full skeleton, but they extrapolate his length was 43 feet long. The larger ones. And he weighed nine tons. Job, are you going to turn this guy into your pet? Are you going to go up and pry open his mouth? Are you going to try to hook him with a, a fish hook? Really, men? Eat him for supper? You're not going to do it. Some of my creatures, Job, that I've made are so far superior to you in power. You cannot stand before them. How do you think you're going to stand before me? I created the heavens, the stars, and the earth, and all of these creatures. 
and you're complaining to me for the way that I govern my universe, including your life, including your trials. You're complaining to a God who is omnipotent and infinitely wise. How can you stand before me, Job? So this was incredible. Now what about all this fire and flashes of light coming out when this animal sneezes in verse 18 through 21 and flames go out of his mouth? Well, it's possible this could be figurative language. God has used some figurative language in describing behemoth that his legs are made out of tubes of bronze. Okay, well that's figurative. And some think that this could be figurative as well. Um, but maybe not. Maybe there is some way, we, there's much we don't know about these ancient dinosaurs, but maybe some of them had the ability to do something like what the bombardier beetle can do. This is a little bug that's still alive today. The bombardier de- uh, beetle is a, an, an incredible little bug. But God has created it to have two chambers inside his abdomen. And when he's threatened, he shoots out a fire-like smoking substance as a defense mechanism. So that whenever this little bug is attacked, he can produce a rapid-fire internal chemical combustion and explosion in, a, in, a, in another third protective little chamber in his abdomen that can eject jets a boiling, irritating liquid to defend himself against an attacker. So this is the way God created this little bug. Now I couldn't have been involved. I mean, I could just imagine, you know, these two chemicals have to be separated because inside the body, once they touch, they explode. So I could just imagine if this thing was trying to evolve and, you know, it, it, it would not last very long before it self-detonated uh, and, and blew up and that was the end of the bug. But this, God has created this and some have found that in some of the, uh, the skulls of these enormous alligator fossils that there are compartments in the head that are totally unique there's two holes that they found in front of their nostrils and they don't know what their function is. So who knows what this thing could, could do? That Dinosuchus. Maybe there was a way for him to, to blow out something like the bombardier beetle could. The, the interesting thing is that worldwide, around the world for centuries and centuries and centuries, there's always been these, these uh, myths of fire-breathing dragons. And it's so universally well known that some think maybe there was a real animal that provided the, the basic framework for the stories of fire-breathing dragons. Maybe there was such an animal like Leviathan that could breathe out something that might would appear to be a flame or smoke out of its mouth or and that would be an irritant or fire or something like that we don't know of course but maybe all those uh myths about fire drinking breathing uh, dragons have 
uh, an element of truth rooted in the evidence of a real animal that God had made. We don't know. Just a thought. It is interesting that Isaiah in chapter 27 verse 1 refers to Leviathan as a symbol for not only evil human kings, but probably for Satan behind those evil human kings. But here it's a real animal. And Job would have been familiar with it. When God mentioned this animal, he would have known exactly which one he was talking about. So again, this is uh, quite an interesting uh, animal that the Lord brings before uh, Job. Again, this animal is extinct. And uh, again, I think there is, uh, there's good proof for the fact that dinosaurs and men lived together. For example, just on another note, they have found uh, red blood cells and soft tissue in a T-Rex leg bone. And that has confounded evolutionists and scientists because to find a red blood cell in soft tissue in a, in a fossil of a T-Rex leg bone should not exist because that red blood cell and that soft tissue should not last at the max 100,000 years. And yet they claim that you know, these animals went extinct uh, 60 million years ago. It's just the, some of the evidence is just contrary to that. There's also all kinds of uh, etchings and cave drawings and, and carvings of dinosaurs in early man's history that should indicate that maybe there was some overlap with man. Man knew these animals and would actually carve uh, images of them. Uh, you can find some even in some of the old uh, religious temples over in the east. Um, so it's a very interesting theory. But notice all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. This is the day 5 of creation. Look at what it says. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. And God created the great sea monsters. And some translations may call these dragons or serpents. But God created the great sea monsters, i.e. Leviathan, and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind. So it's interesting that this animal is brought to Job to examine and compare himself with. Well, this had a, a positive, godly effect upon Job. We now come to chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Now that's a, that's a great insight because now Job is acknowledging that God is sovereign. That God is the Almighty. That no purpose of God can be frustrated by man. In contrast to our purposes and our plans are always being frustrated. It's like building a house of cards and a, and a little bitty breeze come and it just blows it all down. It collapses within. And sometimes we're building our life on houses of cards. You know, we have all these plans. We have all these things and they just don't work out because our plans are easily frustrated. Like the little kid building a sandcastle on the, 
on the shoreline and he doesn't realize that that wave, every time it rolls in, it gets closer and closer and within a matter of minutes, it's going to wash over and destroy all of his hard work of building that little castle. But God's purposes and plans are never thwarted. They're never frustrated because God is the Almighty. That's what he says in verse 2. I know that that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You can do all things, God. You can do it. And then in verse 3 he says, For who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand. So now he's acknowledging his ignorance. I have spoken of things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now, Job says to God. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract, I repent in dust and ashes. So Job has finally gotten his encounter with God. Job had previously accused God of ruling His world unjustly. In such an accusation, Job was placing himself above God as being wiser than God, more knowledgeable than God, thinking he can rule better than God. And so he was accusing God of mistreating him. So in these two speeches, God has challenged Job on his mistaken logic and his pride by bringing behemoth and leviathan before his gaze that he might see compared to these animals he is nothing they are so terrible so powerful he is nothing compared with them how in the world does he think that he can stand before almighty god so god is impressed upon job that only god can rule his creation and god does rule it in justice wisdom And in dealing with his people with loving kindness. And Job just has to trust God. He has no right to complain. God is the potter. We are the clay. And whenever we try to reverse those roles and make ourselves the potter, that's when we get ourselves into deep trouble. What Job needs to do is to humble his pride. He was rendered silent after God's first speech and now he's rendered in submission to God after the second speech. He submits to God's rule. He acknowledges that God can do all things, that His purpose cannot be thwarted. He bows before God. He admits he has, been, he has spoken in ignorance. He wants God to teach him. And now that he's seen the majesty and the greatness of God, as God has revealed Himself to Job, he repents in dust and ashes. And all of this, understand, is God in His love working grace in the heart of His child. God knew that pride was in his heart and God set out on a mission to deal with it and his mission was successful. The cure for Job was to reveal to him that he did have a pride problem, to humble his pride, to understand the greatness of God 
And in light of comparing himself with God, all he can do is bow in submission before the Lord God of the universe. This is a cure for us today as well. Sometimes when we have that grumbling spirit because we don't like the way God has ordained things in our life, we can complain and gripe about our trials, our circumstances. We can get angry with God for the sufferings that have come into our life. And God in His love for us will bring other circumstances into our life to show us how small and insignificant we are, how great and glorious God is to help us, to sanctify us, to humble ourselves and submit before the will of Almighty God. We may not understand God's plan. Usually we don't. But we still need to submit to it because God knows best for His children. And He ordains trials and sufferings and afflictions mysteriously in His plan to conform us to the image of Christ and to work grace deeper into our heart. What we must learn to do, like Job did, is to acknowledge God's faithfulness, that He's worthy of our trust because He's omniscient, and God is omnipotent, and God is also love. For His children, He is love. So everything He has promised to work for the good to those who love Him. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that secures and guarantees that God will work everything in your life for your good and His glory. It's the cross of Jesus Christ that guarantees that your, your most horrendous, terrible trials and sufferings in your life, God will work for the good. Because God ordained that His Son suffer innocently and bore the wrath of God. He suffered at the hands of evil men, the greatest, most wicked, evil act of human history. And yet out of that came the greatest good of all human history. Our salvation, our forgiveness. If God can do that in our Lord's life, He can do it in ours as well. What Christ models for us is in the midst of the facing of our trials that we respond like Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, but Thine be done. We submit. Lord, I don't want to go through this, but Lord, I would rather have Your will than my will. I don't understand it, but I want Your will, not my will. And we submit. We bow before the majesty of God. That's where Job was brought because God loved him. And that's where God will bring us because He loves us. And He will never stop His work of sanctifying His people, dealing with the pride that's down in our hearts. There's a story of the captain. You've heard this story before, I'm sure. Captain of a ship looked into the dark night and saw some faint lights in the distance. And he immediately called his signalman to signal out a message to that other light, that other ship. Alter your course 10 degrees south. And promptly a return message 
came back to the captain that said, alter your course 10 degrees north. The captain was angered by this. His command had been ignored, so he sent out a second message, alter your course 10 degrees south. I am the captain. And back came a message, alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm seaman third class Jones. And immediately the captain sent a third message knowing the fear that it would evoke. Alter your course 10 degrees south. I'm a battleship. And the reply came back, Alter your course 10 degrees north. I'm a lighthouse. God's will is the lighthouse. It doesn't deviate to the left or to the right. It's the lighthouse. It's the rock. And we must learn to deviate our course. To bow to the will of our Maker. To acknowledge that He has the right to deal with us however He so chooses. But He promises that through all the trials and the struggles, He will work it for our good and for His glory. That's the God we worship. This is the God before whom we must bow. And may God give us that heart. Let's pray. Our Father God, we do ask for Your forgiveness for the many times, Lord, that we complain about Your will in our life, the ordained afflictions, the troubles, the sorrows, the sufferings that we don't like, that have robbed us, that have taken away from us. And Lord, our natural heart in suffering is to cry out to You, and sometimes to complain to You. To grumble. Why? Why did You let this come into my life? But God didn't answer. You didn't answer Job's question of why this happened. But rather You revealed to him who You are. In Your glory, Your greatness, Your majesty. To humble Job in his pride. To see the greatness of Almighty God that he might simply learn to trust in the wisdom of his Creator who loves him, who will work all things for the good, that in the midst of the suffering to trust and bow before his throne. And Lord, we can't do that without your grace and without your Spirit. So Lord, grant us that heart and our sorrows Not to complain, but to trust. Not to stand before You to plead our ignorance, but to bow in humility and respect Your holy will. Help us to respond in that way we pray. For the glory of Christ we ask it. Amen.